Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor David Haupt. Good morning again, friends. Over the past seven years, I've had the privilege to see God's hand performing miracle after miracle. For seven years since we started in Cabramatta, I've seen God's protection from the 5T gang that came in one night to kill a client and pulled a gun and put, put it against my temple. I've been bashed twice. I've had the police come and warn and say, there's a, a price on your head. Stay away, close the shop to save your life. But I have seen God change human lives. The head of the 5T gang came and made an appointment and said, I would like to sit down and talk to you because my people have come in to, to kill a client. You've, you have resisted them. They've never experienced that and that for a drug addict. Why would you put up your life to save a person that has no value? And then later he confessed and said, Actually, I've been so impressed with ADRA because they have helped one of my own family members to get off drugs. And the way in which you people have done that showed me that you saw each person, doesn't matter what their circumstances, what their background, as equal and you treated no one different to anyone else. I would like to support your work financially. Should I have accepted that? I did not because uh, I, I said to him, well, while we do need it, um, I want to continue to be able to not to be bought, to offer a service to each and everyone equally. That 5 gang leader ordered his people never to harass, but rather to protect our service. But friends, the most biggest miracle that ever took place is as young people come in through our doors completely shattered and broken. And within a short period of time, to see how that God can transform their lives. I received a phone call from a, an interagency chairperson that said, will you please come and address us? Share with us the work that ADRA does. And I said, what particular would you like me to speak on? He said, please share with us what you've done with Client X. I said, how do you know that Client X is our client? He said, we have been working with that client for four years with no change. 
that person has gone to Adra and for five weeks when he came in we did not recognize him. So complete was the transformation. What is it that you, you people have that we do not have? What we do have, my friends, is the contact with the creator of the universe with whom we bring our clients in contact with. And he performs the miracle. He performs the healing. Pastor Eddie, from this Tuesday, you will be part of that team. Thank you so much for spending a few hours in, in that ministry to, to touch people's lives, to be the instrument through whom God will touch people's lives. Thank you for sharing your pulpit this morning as well. And friends, as I would like to discuss this morning a very important aspect for us as Christians, but which more, mostly is discussed in the counseling room, it is my prayer that God will touch your lives, your hearts, and when we go home, this afternoon that we will know that we have been in the presence of God. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Gracious Father, dear Lord, it is our prayer this morning that your word will be brought minus a man. In other words, Father, that your word will clearly speak to our hearts and as we will ponder one text out of your word, may it so affect us that we will fall in love with the God, the Jesus, that has made us wonderfully and precious. I pray that as we look at the cross, that it will give us new meaning and that the light that shines from that cross will permeate our lives and illuminate us so that the world around us will see that we have been and have met with Jesus is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. For our scripture reading, I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles into Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, the 13th chapter. We're going to focus on a few words in verse 12. Isaiah the 13th chapter and there verse 12 which says I will make a mortal man rare than fine gold a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir I will make man more precious than all the gold that Solomon had used to plate the sanctuary of God. What is your value? What is your value? The number one dilemma that I see in the counseling room is this issue. The issue of what is my worth? 
Yes, clients coming to the counseling room and into our Blacktown Centre with numerous problems, ranging from abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, to on the other side of the range, the abuse of substance, the abuse of relationships, the abuse of power. But in all of that, as you boil it down to one major issue, it comes down to the question, what is my worth? What is my value? Today medical science confirmed that within six weeks after conception has taken place that the state in which the mother is in emotionally will have a direct impact on the way that her unborn baby will feel and believe about him or, or herself when they grow up. So today we talk in the Blacktown Centre about present stressors that impacts the worth of a, of a young person, a young person that grows up with numerous stressors and inability to, by parents to show love and acceptance and appreciation, unconditional love I'm talking about, or when a parent is maybe in prison, or a parent is using drugs, or there's high amounts of criticism, that child grows up to believe that if they had more value, that all of those things never would have taken place. So today, like with myself and my family, we find that many immigrant families faces a major crisis, especially with the first generation. The continual struggle be between the, uh, the parental model and the Australian model in which those children grow up, the church in which they grow up, the criticism or the acceptance can cause stressors or can cause acceptance. We do not even talk about the effect of trauma and abuse on children's lives because they learn by the way in which they observe of how their parents treat them or the community treats them. So what would happen to the following young people, a young child growing up, receiving only acceptance once they are able to perform to a certain model? Or a young girl that is sexually abused by her own grandfather. And currently, my dear friends, I'm working with three young girls in the early teens where instead of loving them and protecting them, their grandfathers have abused them for their, his own sexual gratification. Those young girls say to me, if I was only a better child, my grandfather would have loved me. There must be something wrong. Or else it would have been different. How does a young man grow up to be when he's physically and mentally abused? When he is shunned, when he is beaten up? 
and when he can never do things right in the eyes of the one that is supposed to introduce him to the true character of God, his own father. And my dear friends, these young people will grow up to believe that they are never good enough. Their view of God, their God's view will be changed for they will grow up to believe that God is no different to those that has shown them these characteristics. Salvation would become for them a torment by which day by day they will try to become good enough so that hopefully one day God will accept them. They will become critical they will criticize others because they grew up with criticism, with rejection and never been good enough. They will grow up to believe that you cannot attain the goal in Christ alone of have the assurance day by day, moment by moment of the assurance of eternal life. Wondering, ever wondering if they are good enough to be truly called sons and daughters of God. One of the things that we try to teach our, our uh, people that come into our counselling room is what is true intrinsic value. So I'm going to share with you about uh, something about my own parenthood, my own child's birth. It was a wonderful Sabbath, Pastor Eddie. That Sabbath morning very early when my firstborn was born, um, it, I was supposed to preach that morning in my local church, but very early that morning I, I've been at the hospital and let me tell you, by the time that church service started, there was no more buttons on my shirt. They have all popped out, you know. As, as, as a proud father, I stood in front of my, my congregation and made that announcement that we have just grown our church with one extra member, a beautiful girl that was born. But something significant happened that morning very early, around about four or five o'clock that morning, when the doctor cut that umbilical cord, it was like that, that my daughter jumped out of the hands of the doctor and started to race down the corridor of the hospital. Luckily, uh, the, the, the maternity water was on the third level or else she would have reached the front door and she would have been out before a security guard could have closed that door. Now, I see there's some problem here. I see some mothers with huge frowns on their foreheads. What's wrong? Didn't your kids do the same? What did your kid do? What did your kid do when, uh, when they were born? Cried, but surely they, they could walk. At least they could go and fetch the newspaper for you, couldn't they? So your children could do nothing except cry. And how much were they worth? Not much, I guess. invaluable actually my friends 
when my baby daughter, who is already 21, when she was born, she did not cry. She did not breathe. She was purple-blue. And there was some frantic seconds that ticked by as parents we watched. And our hope and joy turned to despair as we saw the physician working on our child. And then eventually, suddenly, there was a burst, an explosion of, of air and noise, and she just never stopped crying afterwards. She kept on crying. Right through the day, right through the night, and all that she could do was just lie there and make a mess, and she did not care about what our appointments were the following day. She, she just demanded, and, and we had to give. She could not give anything back. She couldn't even roll over. She just opened her mouth and wailed. So a few days after the, uh, afterwards, after her birth, when she was allowed to go home, she sat, well, she didn't even sit, she just lay there and just screamed. So I took her back the following morning to the hospital, and I said, Doctor, please, you've given us the wrong one. There's some defect with this one. Give us another one. You believe me? Oh, my friends, I can remember that I sat up with her and I sat with her to try and give my wife some rest and through the night in the early hours of the morning although I had to leave very early for appointment I sat there with her on my chest and I tried to soothe away the pain because she was a colic baby and I, I, I just felt for her I, I prayed, I said Lord give four, five times her pain to me but at least let her go free so remember singing a little Zulu song, my second language, Zulu. English is my third language. I sang, I said, Ilang alishoni lewenun siswa, Ilang alishoni le komantombi. And so it goes on. And slowly but surely she started to respond to that little song that I sang for her when she was unborn. But here was a child that could contribute nothing, that was hopelessly helpless, that could only make a mess. But her worth, nothing in this world could come by to what I had valued her worth to be. I would give my life to protect her. Why is it then that when we, that child, and understand that your children also had that extreme value, that when you add a few more years to that child's life, that suddenly that child comes to my office and says that I've got no value? How do we get from intrinsic value, the value that the world cannot attach that child's life to, suddenly that child that now has so much to contribute, has so much talent and giftedness, that they say, I do not feel that I've got any value. I'm worth nothing for anyone. 
if I would even just disappear from this planet, no one will even notice, not even God will care. My friends, the reason for all of this is because people are looking at the value that society attaches to their life. They look at the stressors, they look at the abuse and the trauma that life, the sinful world, puts each one of us through, and they say, if that happens to me, it must mean that I've got no value, and they forget the most vital component, and that is the value that God attaches to each human being's life. Jesus had the ability to see people's true value. uh, Because of this, he positively affected the lives of the worst of the worst. But my friends, he did not leave them the way that he found them. He transformed them. He changed them to become sons and daughters of God, not only theologically, but also in essence. He changes their characters to reflect the character of God. Therefore, Jesus Jesus chose in his ministry the worst of the worst. And very quickly, I would like to just mention, because of our time, our lack of time, John chapter 8 tells us a story of a prostitute that meets Jesus right in the center of the church. Actually, she's, she's brought in in John chapter 8 by those that have used her and misused her, but now are, the, are her accusers. They have caught her red-handed. She's guilty as hell. And they bring her into the presence of Jesus to condemn her, but in actual fact, to condemn Jesus, who was this prostitute. As we combine pieces of scripture and we, we bring in to, into this story also the writings of Ellen White, we discover that this woman in John chapter 8 is exactly the same one that was led astray by Simon the priest that was a relative of hers, Mary Magdalene that grew up in the little town of Magdala who who grew up with her brother Lazarus caring for her and for her sister. But after the the encounter with Simon the, the minister, the priest what happened in that encounter went deeper with her and she felt that if, if, if she had more value, that he would have looked up to her instead of abused her. And she started in her spiritual life to dwindle, because if this is how the minister treats her, maybe this is also how God treats people. And she started, she eventually left the town of, of Bethany and went down to Magdala, and she became Mary of Magdala, a prostitute, eventually, who sat at the feet of Jesus, out of whom Jesus drove out seven demons. You remember that story? Eventually, out of gratitude for what happened, I would like to suggest in John chapter 8, she eventually has the courage to move back to Bethany because Jesus has changed the life. And she's the first one at the grave site of Jesus early that Sunday morning. 
Why would Jesus set a sinner free? What is her worth? Oh, my friends, Jesus was willing to set her free because he was ready to be stoned in her place. Because her value and her worth is not attached to the abuse that she had experienced as a young girl, but it is attached to the price that the life-giver Jesus Christ would pay for her life. What is your value this morning? Is it based upon that which people around you have done towards you, their behavior towards you? Or have you been to the foot of the cross and have you looked up at that cross and have the love and the grace and the value of God shined into your life yet? Oh, my friends, Jesus saw value in the pathetically, physically challenged of our community. A man in John chapter 5 was lying at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, hoping, waiting that someone would see a value in him and help him to get into that water. But when Jesus stands next to him and says to him, Do you want to be healed? He says, Lord, there is no one. What an accusation to the church of his day. For 38 years, he is repulsive. His physical challenge that he faces turns the people away. They do not see value in him anymore because of the way in which he looks. Or is it maybe his physical condition attached to inner sin that he had committed and God now is punishing him through that way. Whatever way it is, my friends, let me tell you what a challenge, what what an accusation to the church of his day. Lord, there is no one to help me. I wonder what the people of Greater Sydney, the challenge of our great city will say when Jesus comes. Will they also say, Lord, there is no one? Do you want to be healed? Oh, my friends, Jesus looks past the abuse. Jesus looks past the outer deformity and he looks at the heart of each human being. And he touches this young man's life. And instantaneously, this man is healed and given worth by the transformating power of Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus was drawn also to the outcast sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners of the community. And in Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus is told of a young man that grew up in the church but eventually rebelled because he had a physical deformity. He was shorter than all others, but he had one desire, one yearning in his heart, and that was to see Jesus, but he could not see Jesus. Why not? If you read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, you'll see that it says that he was short. Could he not see Jesus because he was short? 
That is what we would like to say. But if you go to the original Greek text, you will see that the text says that Zacchaeus was short and could not see Jesus because of the crowd. Who was that crowd that blocked him from seeing Jesus? They were the church people of his day. Their attitude towards sinners, their attitude to the outcast. They did not want to know this man. They stood with their backs towards this man. But then Zacchaeus makes the discovery of his life. Yes, while he stands here with one yearning, and that is to see Jesus, he discovers that Jesus had already seen him because Jesus stands at the base of the tree of his life. And the first thing that Jesus says is what? He calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus. And what does Zacchaeus hear? You see, my friends, Zacchaeus is the minative of the name Zechariah, which means God remembered. Oh, Zacchaeus, the people around you might want to forget you. The church might want to forget you. Yes, your family might want to forget you, but oh, Zacchaeus, the Son of God cannot forget you. Come down. I want to go home with you. God sees value in us, a value that you and I cannot even start to guess, imagine the value that God has given us. Oh, my friends, Jesus accepted the mentally disturbed and mentally challenged. In my work, we talk about different kind of diseases, which I will not mention today, because then it is so easy to categorize and box people in. The Bible talks about demon possession. A man that grew up amongst the graves in Matthew chapter 8. And as Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat at the shores of, of uh, the people of Gadarene, there's a man that comes, that comes running down from, from the mountain where he lives amongst the rocks and the graves. He's naked. There's sores all over his body. He's been chained many a time and he's broken those chains. He screams and wails through the night. He terrifies and torments everyone around him. And he comes racing towards Jesus and his disciples. And the disciples just look, give him one look and they turn on their heels and they run. And as they run past Jesus, I can hear them say, Lord, come! But Jesus stands because he sees a value. Jesus listens past the abuse of this man and he hears the cry of this man's heart. And how much does Jesus invest in that man that day? Put on your thinking caps with me this morning. The Bible tells us that he invests 2,000 pigs in this man. Remember that story? What is the worth of 2,000 pigs? Well, do some 
mathematics sums with me. I'm not very good at it. But so I, I brought my calculator out because the figures that I got to was too staggering. And, and I, I had to make sure that it is what I'm going to share with you, what it is. 2,000 pigs, a pig. I grew up on a farm. And uh, you, a, a grown-out pig weighs about 120 kilograms, a nice big one. So you cut out when you slaughter that pig, cut about 50%. That leaves you with roughly 60 kilograms. Am I right so far? So uh, one pig, how much does pork cost, by the way? I'm asking the wrong audience. <clears throat> let's, let's say $10 to make it easy. I better go and check it one day. How much does one carcass cost? $600 times 2,000. 1.2 million dollars. For one lunatic, one demon-possessed man, that is what Jesus is willing to sacrifice, but Jesus sacrificed actually more. Because when Jesus eventually came to this earth, God did not give us the best that heaven had. He gave us everything that heaven had. He emptied heaven to save that one lunatic, demon-possessed man living on the streets of inner Sydney. You understand what I'm trying to say? That is the value of one soul. This Dr. Heppenstall, one of our bigger and older theologians that I've got a lot of respect for, that wrote the following, he said, The poet Longfellow could take a worthless sheet of paper and by writing a poem on it, make it worth $6,000. That is genius. A Rockefeller can sign his name to a piece of paper and make it worth millions. That is capital. The Australian government can take a, a metal stamp a symbol on it and make it worth $1. That is money. An artist can take a $5 piece of canvas, paint on it, and make it worth $100,000. That is art. But God can take a young man and a young woman, wash them in the blood of Christ, capture their hearts and their minds, put His Spirit in, and, and mind in them, and transform them and make them like unto Joseph, Daniel, Paul, and himself. That is called redemption. Oh, my friends, evolution say to us that man is made little higher than animals, a thing of earth, re reputable uh, and returnable to lust, uh, sorry, I mean dust, and a child of the beast. The Bible, though, affirms that we are made as sons and daughters of God in the image of God, that God has made us infinitely more valuable than all the gold and all the silver of this planet. So when we come to worship on Sabbath, each Sabbath, we can know who we are because we can truly say that I am a child of the king of the universe made and redeemed by his blood transformed by his spirit to live in his likeness
With God we can far outweigh in value the sum total of everything that is on this earth. A minister's daughter came into our centre about a year ago. We've been praying with her parents for over a year that God would send her in. You see, this girl was a drug addict and worked as a prostitute. So does a number of our girls work the streets of King Cross last night and they will do it again tonight until someone will reach them with the Spirit of God. But we've been praying for over a year that God will bring this young lady in and she refused. She heard the reports of our work, the, the willingness to accept them, to attach a value to their life that their own community did not attach. But she did, just did not come in. And then one day, lo and behold, she just pushed open the door and she walked in. She sat there in my office and she said, okay, I'm affected by drugs. I'm selling my body to whoever is willing to pay the price. So condemn me, tell me how much I am worth. And I looked at her and I opened the, the word of God and I started to share from the Old Testament how that God had introduced himself to sinners. I shared with her the story of Hagar that was used and abused because God's man distrusted God. And how that after she, she was used and abused, she was rejected. And how that God met her there in the desert. And how that God had introduced himself as in Hebrew, Lachairoi, which means the God that sees. The God that sees when no one else wants to see her, when everyone else wants to forget her. God sees her. And week by week, day after day, we went through Scripture and we opened God's Word and shared no condemnation, but just shared a searching God to her. This girl was sexually abused by the elder of the local Seventh-day Adventist church. And because of what had happened, and because the pastor, her father was the pastor, he tried to protect the church. And it went deep into the heart of his daughter, because if she had value, her father would have, would have fought for her. But suddenly she discovered a father that truly cared. A father that cared so much that he emptied heaven for her. And I can remember she came in that one specific day. She had a hundred dollars in her wallet. She said to me, once our, our counseling session is finished, I'm going out and I'm going to buy myself a dress. Mom gave me a hundred dollars because that at least makes me feel better about myself when I've got something new on. And I shared with her the story of the cross and what the cross meant and the price that Jesus paid for her. And I put her name into that gospel account. And she wept and she said, can this be true? And I linked it with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21, that those that are in Christ is a new creation. 
that she can stand before God as if nothing of the past ever had happened. And the tears just flowed off her cheeks and she said, Do you want to say to me that if I was the only one that would accept him, that he still would have died for me? From there she went and she she, uh, watched Mel Gibson's uh, epic story on, on the crucifixion of Christ and she came back in a state. She was weeping. Her face looked terrible. She walked into my office. She said to me, Now I can see vividly what Jesus had paid for me and that only for me. If that is true, that he's done that for me, I, I'm finished with my past. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I even want to give my past to him. We prayed and she surrendered her life to Jesus. She found her boyfriend. She said to him, I'm coming home, but things will be different now. He said, what do you mean? She said, I have really, now I've really met Jesus now. And although I love you, I will only belong to you once you have made the commitment of marriage to me. But now I belong to Jesus and I will belong to him till Jesus comes. She took out that hundred dollar note. She said, I don't need this money anymore. I'm going to give it back to my mom because I've discovered my true value through the cross of Calvary. Jesus has bought me and he has set me free. My dear friend, my question to you this morning is what is your value? Have you been lately to the foot of the cross? Have you looked at the face that hung on that cross Have you seen how much he has paid for you? If you are still wondering about what your value is, maybe if you're older, your family have moved away, maybe you've gone through divorce, maybe you've gone through a lot of pain, maybe you've gone through very similar things that the clients that I see on a daily basis have gone through. I invite you not to look at that, but I invite you to look at the cross of Jesus to discover your true value. Give him everything that you have. Surrender all to him and allow him to set you free and make you truly a son and a daughter of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, There is so much beautiful things that are happening around us in this world. But Father, it is also punctuated by all of the heartache and the pain, the suffering, the abuse, the trauma that we see. And out of the beauty, we quite often see the thorns of sin that tries to destroy us and especially try to paint a picture of God that is never yours. Try to turn us away from you, from your love, your grace, hoping that we will never discover our true value in you. Because if we do, 
oh Father, there's nothing that can hold us to this earth anymore because then we will want to be transformed into your image, your likeness, your character. We would want to be your children. I pray, Father, that you will touch my life. And Lord, that day by day that I will live the sermon, that I will accept that value and live up that value. But the same I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here in front of me. And Lord, if there's anyone this morning that is going through a specific trial time, I pray that you will reveal yourself to them in your full glory and shine upon them the grace of God and draw them in to that transforming power. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Wallara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit wallarachurch.org. That's Wallara, W-O-O-L-L-A-H-R-A, church.org.
Butler, and I want to share with you today something that I've learned about God. In the world of Christianity, there is a tendency to swing from one or another perspective of God and what He is like. On the one hand, Christians may emphasize the grace of God, and often those who do this will say that the law has been done away with at the cross and we don't need to worry about keeping it. Now, even if Christians don't go so far as saying that, oftentimes there can be an emphasis on God's grace so much so that God's law just fades in the background and nothing much is said about it. And there is, there is this strong overemphasis of God's grace to the exclusion of his law. On the other hand, some people emphasize the law so much that God's grace is put in the background. And people who do this oftentimes end up having a, a dry, formal, even legalistic experience that's so focused on, on doing and trying to, to keep the law that they forget how God is gracious and, and kind and merciful to us who are, who are sinners. Now, it's interesting about this, this tendency, because both groups are actually emphasizing an attribute of God and his character. God is merciful. God is gracious. But God is also just, and he has a law, and he stands by his law. That is part of the stability of his government. But there's something wrong with overemphasizing one or the other of these attributes to the exclusion of the other. And let me illustrate. Say you had a clothes peg and you wanted to show someone who had never seen a clothes peg what a clothes peg is like. Well, just imagine you pick up the clothes peg, you split it apart so that you've taken undone the two wooden peg parts, uh, sides and you've the spring in the middle and you've split it into two different parts and you go up to your friend and you show them just one of the part. Now, is that really going to give them the right picture of what a peg is like? I mean, they're not even going to be able to see how it works and what it does. All they're going to see is one wooden side. Or maybe one side in the spring. It's not really going to give people or your friend 
a clear picture, a clear understanding or illustration of what a peg is like. Well, it's the same with God. If you only emphasize one aspect of his character, you only get a one-sided picture of God and what he is like. So, for example, if you're overemphasizing grace so much that you're putting law in the background, then you're going to get the impression that, oh, God loves you, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to get away with just about anything you want to do. Uh, He's not going to necessarily come around and bang you over your back if you do something wrong. You know, it's all good. That's the kind of understanding you're going to get. And God God is going to seem just, I guess, a bit cheap in that way and, and shallow. And on the other hand, if you have just a focus on the law and, and God's justice, you might have an experience and perspective and understanding of what God is like, that he is, that, that makes you afraid because you think that he's going to be standing over your shoulder ready to beat you over the head if you do one thing out of line. And <laughs> quite frankly, you're probably going to hate God because a God like that is not a God you would want to be around. But when you reveal both God's merciful and gracious side of his character as well as his, his justice and law, you are showing a balanced perspective. When they're both together, you get a true picture of what God is like and who he is. And it's interesting, this is very much supported by the scriptures. In Exodus, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, the Lord proclaimed his name or his character, who he is. He proclaimed it to Moses. And this is what he says in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. It says, And the Lord passed by before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Now you would have noticed in that text that it talked about God's mercy, his goodness, long-suffering, graciousness, forgiveness, all of that, but then it said he won't clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. You know, he will he will be just in terms of, of his law and in terms of sin. So you can see as God is proclaiming who he is in his character, both of those attributes are clearly revealed. Psalms, in Psalms chapter 85, verse 10, this idea is also presented. It says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is a beautiful verse, and it's often um, quoted in connection with Christ on the cross and what he did, because in doing that, when Christ died for our sins, he was showing an ultimate act of grace to take our punishment that we deserve, to take it upon himself and let us go free. That was an ultimate act of undeserving grace. At the same time, it was an ultimate act of vindicating his law because it showed 
that there must be a punishment for sin. There must be a punishment for breaking and transgressing that law. And so at that one moment, God revealed his, his mercy, his character of mercy, as well as his character of justice. These combined he revealed on the cross through Christ. Christ in his ministry also very much represented what God is like and represented these two attributes. In John chapter 1 verse 17, it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There you see it again, grace and truth. Truth is that which is the stable, um, solid, unchanging aspect of God's character. And it's reminds us also of things like God's law and his justice you know those stabilizing attributes is is what is encapsulated there and Christ you see in his ministry he he went about we're told he went about teaching preaching and healing healing revealed Christ's grace and compassion for those who were sick and suffering and you know those merciful tender characteristics Christ's preaching though and teaching revealed his truth you know he was preaching truth he was preaching righteousness and repentance all of those more solid unchanging aspects of God he was revealing in that aspect of his ministry so you can see that Christ revealed those dual characteristics of God in his work and life so it is important that we see this balance clearly in our minds so that we can first of all for our own life in our own spiritual walk with God get a true picture of what he is like and only then can we be able to reveal to others exactly what God is like and not present a one-sided picture that is going to distort who God is and may quite well turn people away from God because it, it just seems extreme or, or unattractive but when we present those two aspects together in a balanced way people will see God truly as he is and will be drawn to him. So next time you're hanging some clothes on the line with a clothes peg, may you remember that God's character is a beautiful balance of mercy, justice, grace and truth. And may you be inspired to reveal this balance in your own life that others may be drawn to him. God bless you and bye for now. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.